Welcome to the Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub podcast. AGS is a leading provider of agronomy services, exclusive products, and unrivaled customer support. Underpinned by a well-qualified and experienced team of former sports turf managers. AGS. Supply. Consult. Support. Welcome to another episode of the Turf Hub from AGS. My name is Matt Lebrun, and today I am joined by Deborah Cox from Lagan Valley Scientific. Deborah is a fantastic guest that we've worked with over a number of years now. Um, I hope you all enjoy the conversation and look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Hi, Deb. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good, thanks. I'm really, really glad to be here and um, just to join in the long list of contributors over the last year. I'm a big fan of the, the podcast. It's actually weird, but nice to, to be on it. So thank you. Brilliant. Well, I really appreciate it. And have you had a busy, busy few weeks? I saw you briefly at, at BTME. Yeah, I did. Um, BTME always comes and goes far too quickly, even if you are there for a good few days. But it's really nice just to always meet people face to face and connect. It just makes such a difference, you know, working here by myself. It's nice to see other human beings for a brief moment. So, no, it was it was a really, really good week. Yeah, busy but good. Yeah, I think that was the feedback from everyone was um, everyone was glad to kind of get back out properly at BTME and, and catch up with everyone. And it was a really good show, and uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. And you know, one of the one of the great things was how many people were there compared to last year. It was a really, really good show. So well done to all the organisers. It was great. Yeah, I completely agree. And with yourself, we've obviously worked um, together through different projects over the past couple of years, in particular. But I think it'd be nice uh, for everyone if you just give us a, a brief intro about what you do, uh, how you actually started in this industry, because it's quite a, a niche industry. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally is. Um, yeah, where did I start? Um, so back in the day, I was actually trained as a molecular biologist, so completely different to what I do now. And it was really in the trade of forensic science. So um, I, I've been looking at DNA for a very long time and it's really a cornerstone of the work that I do so I for example I might have a sample and one of the ways that I investigate what's maybe wrong with um, turf or a plant is to look at the DNA of a particular pathogen see if it's present and to look at symptoms under the microscope so it's a bit of a combination um, that I do it's a little bit niche as you say um, but that really started in what 2000 and blimey three four uh, I forget a lot a long time ago and um, I've really worked with DNA ever since so adding little bits and pieces over the years I've worked um, actually my first taste of plant pathology was actually when I was an undergrad student during the summer months I went and worked on strawberry farm <laughs> if you can believe it and um, yeah one of my main jobs as well as making sure the fruit quality was on point was to look for things like botrytis and uh, crown rot so that was really my first taste but I really didn't touch on plant pathology again until I started my PhD many years later in, um, in Belfast 
And that was really when I was first introduced to uh, the Queen's University nematology team who really specialise in animal parasitology. My PhD actually didn't have anything to do with parasitology either. It was um, to do with abiotic stress in plants and the molecular mechanisms, so what goes on inside the plant, the things that you can't see. So I really studied that, but I was really quite intrigued by this unseen world of nematode parasites. I just never really thought about them, probably up until, I'd say, 2000 and. 12, 13, something like that. And it was actually my partner, Thomas, that first introduced me to them. So it's a bit of a love story there too. That is a, uh, yeah, that's quite an intrinsic link, isn't it, between the love story and the and the nematodes as well. Oh, it's great to see. So you started the, the kind of process a long time ago, and then it just kind of built up from there. You started focusing more on the nematode side of it? Yeah, I, th- I think traditionally a lot of... Um, Diagnostics has really been from a microscopy point of view. So you're looking for, you're looking down a microscope to try and see microscopic um, organisms that are maybe causing some decline. But I worked from almost the other way around, really from a molecular point of view. So using DNA of these organisms to detect extremely low levels, sometimes below the level of detection that you'd expect from a microscopy um, standpoint. So. I've had to learn a lot of skills over the years in microscopy, working backwards. So working with Colin uh, Fleming for a number of years and Maggie McDowell, Trevor Martin, the guys up at the Agri-Food and Biosciences Institute and really learning a lot of skills from very experienced hands. So essentially, I'm very, very lucky to have landed where I am and to have had support from so many people. And yeah, it's, it's been a great transition. I, I'm very pleased to um part of the industry now it's taken a long time to find my place but it kind of feels like home which is nice yeah it is a great industry to be in and it's why i always say to everyone it is a very it's a very small industry everyone kind of knows everyone but everyone is so supportive in the main yeah i really feel that too i've, I've had nothing but welcome and support even though i give people bad news <laughs> you know the um the connection that you have with people is very, very different and uh, there's, there's just such passion around what people do. You, know, you can feel it. It's yeah, it's, it's really great to be around so many well-respected people just doing doing a great job, <laughs> like really. It's, yeah. bri- it's brilliant. It is. It's, um, it's what keeps us going, I think, um, all the way through. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of backstory that, that you have there. And then obviously now with the new business that you launched a, a couple of years ago now, is it? Yeah, uh, as you do, you start a business in a pandemic. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's worked out for the best. I mean, I feel that I'm in a position now to support people in a way that I couldn't do before. Um, the business is essentially two pillars so half of it is kind of routine diagnostics if someone's maybe experiencing something a little bit wrong with the turf and you want to explore what's wrong they can send a sample but the other half is more independent research and it's almost like a hybrid at times because I've worked with turf managers really closely over the last couple of years and it's really like an extension network like a support network for whatever they're trying to achieve because sometimes you have to look at 
past behavior over a long time to really understand what's going on so that you can put plans in place so that you know you're managing risk as effectively as you can it's, it's a lot of risk management actually so it's kind of a hybrid between the two where I'd work with people very closely for a number of months or years um, in some cases. Yeah and uh, I know a key focus that obviously we've been working on is the nematode side. Yeah um, yeah I, I would say that's 90-95% of what I do both research and uh, diagnostics. Um, I'm extremely privileged, lucky, grateful, all of the good words to, to work with so many people on a global basis. I think it's maybe 21 countries now in the last uh, couple of years. So building relationships is very hard when you can't meet a lot of people. So I really enjoy what I do and I just hope that I'm helping people. Sometimes you only receive a sample and no backstory. I think that's the most complicated <laughs> uh, thing to, to, to do because you always want to make sure you're doing your best and that you understand all of the all of the challenges that go on alongside just a sample that might be going through decline there might be other things hidden in the background and that's why i really appreciate working with agronomists and as as i say as i say it's really like a team effort to kind of get to the bottom of why something has happened and to make sure something doesn't happen again and it is the the kind of having the full holistic approach really does help a lot of figuring it out in the background if you would so with that's your you, your kind of nematode analysis and your nematode study, what what's the process of that? What actually happens? So people take samples if mm -hmm. they believe that they have uh, a nematode issue. They send it to you and then what's the process from there? Yeah, um, so interesting point before I even talk about the lab stuff. Sometimes what people do is they develop a, a sampling strategy. So it's, it's about being clever with with the sampling that you're trying to achieve and why you're actually doing it. Some people go on a schedule, so it's something fairly regular. And the reason why is because in my own time, because I'm sad and uh, me, me and my partner Thomas were, were a bit boring, but we, we, we kind of have this long going study where we're looking intricate details of nematode population dynamics to see what the undulations are like, so what the ups and downs are like, because levels don't really stay constant. And one thing that I've found is that there's this, it's almost like a disconnect between what you see in the surface and damage that is done. Usually the damage comes first and then you see it, particularly in the summertime. So sometimes I actually work with clients well ahead of time, way in advance of um, symptoms from previous year. And this is why I'm saying sometimes it can take a long time to figure out what's going on just because when populations are extremely high, they can cause a lot of damage, but then the population crashes and declines. And usually it's the root system that's being compromised, so you can't really see it until abiotic stress hits. So it's, it's about this kind of overall picture of what's happened. And so it's so important to have a backstory. So that's where I'll start with that. Just always, no matter who you work with, always give just a little bit of context because it can really, really help you try and figure out what's happened and when so that you can put plans in place such so that it doesn't happen again. Whenever you do take a sample, 
Um, basically what happens in the lab is you gently break apart all the tissues. So um, a composite core sample might contain something like 12 1.5 centimeter wide cores by maybe 10 to 12 centimeters deep. I say that's the most common kind of size that comes in. And you break it all apart. You then take a subsample of that and you pass it through a series of sieves. So you're separating out organisms based upon size. And then you put it on a filter um, and you allow nematodes to kind of crawl through this filter and you end up with a very clean suspension of nematodes and that's essentially what you look at under the microscope and you count how many of the different types there are and you use well each lab will have a different way of doing this but the way that I do it is to use a formula to give you an overall what I call a nematode damage index score so it's a kind of way of guiding you to whether or not the levels of nematodes that you have are likely to be causing damage right now at this time. But we have to remember that levels go up and down. So taking the result in a bit of context is actually quite tricky. And this is why I like to work with a lot of people quite closely, just so that you understand that if you have a very high level, it doesn't stay high forever. It goes up and down and up and down. And just trying to get in that mindset that things change is really important when it comes to management. Yeah, I've seen it with um, well, some long-term studies that we've been involved with, where you start to see the hatching patterns. Yes. You know the yeah. different species that yeah are coming through. Yeah, a really important point there as well. It, it's, it's actually really quite common to find mixtures of different species. If you take root knot, for example, oh, it's so interesting because sometimes they compete and other times they don't. I don't quite know why this is, but if you only look to genus level, it might look like hatching occurs over a, a much longer period of time, but what's actually happening is one species will hatch first, followed by the, by the next. I don't know if that has to do with um, construction or the way in which some of these nematodes are maybe introduced. Um, but there's a lot of unanswered questions. And as I say, just because of the time frame that's involved, it really does take years to look at the kind of patterns to really understand what's going on. Agreed. And um, I know we're getting some more and more in-depth research on this. and and everything else that's going on in the background. But just to give people a, a bit of an overview, there are various types of nematodes. You know, yeah. some that are good, some that are bad. So yeah. <laughs> if, if you could just give us a brief overview of, yeah. of which ones we're looking at. Yeah, really good point. And to be honest with you, what I should probably do so that <laughs> it puts a bit of a positive spin is talk about some of the good guys. Um, I, I often give talks on the, the kind of what we think of them as bad guys. In all honesty, if you look at the composition of a typical sample, you know, up, upwards of maybe 80% are, are, are usually the good guys. Most of these feed on bacteria. Um, turf root zones are predominantly bacteria dominant. And it, it's completely normal to find really complex mixtures. And one thing that people seem to keep thinking is that turf root zones are biologically inert, you know, there's nothing there, we have to add biology. But actually, when you look at, just, let's just take a golf course, just for example, if you look across the rough, if you look across the, you know, the 
the fairways, even the greens, there's actually quite a lot of different types present, and they're and it, it varies across the year as well. They're not they're not as inert as what people think they are, and it's actually a very positive thing that we should really be embracing. But um, but yeah, in a typical sample, the majority will be bacteria feeders. You will have some fungal feeders now fungal feeders the whole grouping is a little bit obscure at the moment because it's very difficult to trace what eats what when everything is dark you know it's below ground these interactions we can't see them uh, at least directly and so one thing that's pretty cool that you can do is there's these new techniques available where you can basically look at the guts of these organisms, these microscopic worms that are just a fraction of a millimetre and look at the DNA inside to try and get an idea of what they actually consumed. So it will give us a much better idea of what eats what and the overall soil food web because one of the reasons that we think that plant parasites get kind of out of control is just what eats them or what consumes them what limits their their ability to to, to reproduce um we we don't have answers to a lot of these questions and the last type well there's two other types um there's what we call predators so these have large stylets just like the the plant feeders but they're really used to pierce prey and so it's a, a horribly brutal world where um everything eats everything else while it's still alive um there's some pretty nice videos from uc davis online if, if you head over there you can actually see some of these nematodes in action it's pretty cool and the ones which probably most people will have heard of and just to clarify just so there's no confusion some of the good guys are the nematodes which you would apply to help control things like chafer grubs and leather jackets so these are called entomopathogenic nematodes or epns and so they are also the good guys but they're not hugely abundant either you know you're really talking a fraction of a percent so very very low and the two the main types that actually cause the the problems then, typically root sheath, you know, and yep. a, a couple of others that, that we've seen along the way. There's this huge amount of um, life, you know, actually within the soil that we still haven't fully discovered yet. And I think that's the kind of path that, that you're going down. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, when it comes to football, most certainly in a stadium situation, root knot and sheath are the, the top two in the list without a shadow of a doubt. But as you move into more like grassroots or into cricket or um, bowls, golf, other types of sports, the, the types that cause the problem can be more varied. And it, there's more biodiversity there as well, I would say, as well. So, so yeah, there, there's this whole world that we're really trying to explore in a lot of a more, more precise detail, a lot of intricate detail, because the details are really important. Like, I, I don't know or I'm not aware of another study that's looked at this much detail for this length of time, just to look at these patterns. And as I'm working with turf managers, just to know that biological patterns exist and you can use them to your advantage, just so that you're not applying nematicides, on, you know, when, when you don't have to is really really important both from a you know a environmental standpoint but a monetary one as well because it's not cheap to do so we always want to make sure we're doing our best um yeah when it comes to the other kind of microbes that are in the turf 
yeah, we, we've done a few projects over the years, Matt, and um, some really, really interesting things coming out of out, out of the data. Um, first of all, is just the biodiversity that's there. Um, yeah. When you look at publications looking at, you know, like managed grassland or farming land, and you look just at the amount of what's called an OTU or an operational tax on unit, this is just an equivalent name that's given to like a genus level uh, taxonomic rank. So, you know, it's, it's upwards of 2,000, so somewhere between two and 10,000. You know, it's very, very high. And it's not that different to productive grasslands. And turf, like professionally managed turf, is often left out of major studies, so it's, it's not overly well researched, but certainly in cool season turf from the British Isles, there's a lot going on, and that's a positive thing. Mm. I think the more that we kind of delve into it, the more we understand, the more we'll be able to actually implement synergistic applications or maintenance to try and get the best out of the, the beneficial side mm. um, within the soils. And for somebody with PPM, so plant parasitic nematodes, what would be the best kind of process for you um, to try and diagnose and to also try and um, uh, eradicate uh, actually seeing damage? And it was, you said it would start with the kind of sample process. Yeah, um, well, two things. Num number one is for, for first of all acceptance where we will never get to zero and complete eradication boy i think it's impossible um colin once said that you know nematodes are like kind of like true love they last forever um unfortunately i have to kind of agree with that you know but you see that the nematodes kind of come back roughly in, in the same way year on year or you see the symptoms roughly in the same kind of place year on year and that's because they don't ter they don't move terribly much so what i would say in addition to acceptance is to look back at any historical data you have you might think oh that's from years ago you know things change but yes okay they can change but unless well when it comes to significant renovations yes okay there can there can be changes there but in less renovated land typically you would have the same types present so what you can do is you can start to look and see what your baselines might look like now it does take a bit of experience and a bit of data you need data behind you but just as an example I've been tracking with Thomas for the last few years now um, across multiple sites and um, what, what you really look at is some some areas naturally have higher levels than others and we don't fully understand why this is but it's just interesting because what you can do is then you compare what damage you see so keeping like a photo diary it's all it's all about really documenting what you see and when it's, it's almost like a, a little black book and no one ever has to see it except from you and anyone that you want to share it with but looking back to see what happened before can be really really helpful just because of the kind of the, the kind of recurrence that you can sometimes see now it is true that you do have different nematode pressures year to year it's not always like exactly the same but the main key types it is worth just thinking about historical data and what you actually know because some types 
know, I can't really say that it's predictive, that's not true, but no one has a crystal ball, including myself, but I would say that I'm getting a bit better at saying what's more likely to be the major pressures, and that's really useful because, as I say, you don't really want to be applying any chemistries unnecessarily. We want to try and improve our cultural practice, and the key thing is really reducing stress and making sure that the root systems are robust enough to support the plant for whatever tournament you have up or whatever you know whatever challenges the plant has ahead a strong root system tends to tolerate more more burden uh, generally speaking but as our climate is changing things like gray leaf spot um is, is something just in the back of my mind you know with these really hot humid warm temperatures especially for stadiums so managers of um of, of ryegrass or, or fescues um tall fescues might want to to think a little bit ahead about you know what what challenges they face in addition to to nematode pressure um in, in the coming months coming into summer mm. Yeah, and I've seen that more and more in the last couple of years. And uh, yeah, I completely agree with you on the the nematode side. For most of the people that I've worked with, if we're able to start early, good kind of sound microbial life, soil biology, root system, relieve stress, you can sometimes see quite high numbers, but you won't see the, the visual effects, yeah. you know, nowhere near as much. It's when you've kind of gone added stress, um, you know, added usage, root system has, has taken a bit of a battering and that's when you kind of see the, the really big visual effects. And one of the things I found with the visual effects is once you've seen them, it's at least kind of six weeks until you kind of get rid of them. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, well, from a stadium point of view, um, when you start to see any chlorosis, well, it depends on the type of nematode, of course, but if, if it's something like root knot, the yellowing can actually occur during female development. Now, this is, this is the hard pill to swallow. During female development, these nematodes are inside the roots, so it's not an appropriate time to treat more or less. It's just that the roots are really being, or energy is being redirected to supporting these pests laying eggs. It's an extremely energetic, demanding process, and so nine times out of ten, if you see that chlorosis, it's usually associated with that and so that's when it it's really important to get a little bit of detail in the reports to say how how far through the egg development is this this life cycle because it can give you an idea of the most appropriate time to reduce the population hopefully have some recovery and incorporating some biostimulants in there as well just to replace some of the lost root tissue that that does tend to help massively so it's uh, there's a range of seaweeds available to to help you do that but some suggest to people to do is to always ask for data to support the claims that are made for products just so that you know, there's something in the there's something in your arsenal that's supporting the decisions that you're making. Um, I just think it's really, really important, and a lot of companies are moving towards this now. And you know, backing up what they're saying a lot with with a with a lot more assurances. I would say. Yeah, and I think that's a key point. A few years ago, you know, there was different things with with nematode 
brief studies which would look over a couple of months. Mm. You know, we, we've had a nematode reading here, which is very high. Mm. Uh, we put product A on, and then we've done another one here, which is now very low. Yeah. Um, and you go in, okay, brilliant. But <laughs> if, if you do that over a period of time, you actually realize that's the kind of hatching patterns and it moves yes. up and down anyway. The biggest kind of non-chemical on the metasite difference I have seen is if you focus on soil health, correct procedures, the correct biostimulants that can be backed up. Mm. And as I said, it takes away the, the visual signs. You you will still have numbers. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's you will still have nematodes within your profile. However, you've got a really good kind of base and by increasing the, the beneficials, you are less likely to see the kind of visual effects and actually have uh, impact on the performance of that pitch. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And great point about, you know, testing in the field. I mean, you, you, you only go on the data that you have and not everyone has the money to spend on trials to do them, you know, with a lot of replication, what, what's needed, you know, like a university study and things like that. But if you do have a before and after, you're absolutely on the money there. It's worth just having a think about when it started and how far you are through the cycle because these huge swings happen anyway so it's just important to think about not just the population you have at that moment but what happens you know months down the line for the next generation that's actually where the money is because you want to make sure that you know if something has happened it has a knock-on effect have you actually affected that population this is why it takes time and i appreciate not everyone has time i'm impatient as well i want to know what's going to happen but sometimes in the field things just take time they do we're all dealing with all living organisms you know, it's um, it does take time, and I think that for me, you know, we we did some fantastic um, work over lockdown with with Twickenham Stadium, mm. which was a very rare opportunity. You know, um, I think we're all pretty similar background, as in we're all quite geeky. We all um, <laughs> we all have to keep busy, you know. So I think, and Jim is you know fantastic, you know, mm. well. And it was a great opportunity, opportunity to uh, to actually do some kind of live trials and data at Twickenham without actually having games playing, you know, excess uh, applications. We really wound it down just to try and get a really clear story of, of what was happening and, and, and what was um, what we were actually seeing. And the, the biggest things for me that, that came back from that is ongoing. As I said, by, by no means have, have we found the, the answers. It is continuous, you know, but I think there's things that we can do to, to really help. But actually seeing those hatching patterns mm. and how temperature within the stadium, because we did two in the shade, two in the mm. sun, yeah. the differences between even that, you know, a couple of degrees within the, yeah. within the sun to a couple of degrees within the, um, within the shade, and more effects that really really interesting yeah so there's basically each each month where a sample was taken as you say there's just a tiny amount of replication it's not a fully replicated trial or anything but just two samples taken and it was just the subtle shift in the overall profile 
that seem to be somewhat consistent. It's always shifting in the same kind of direction, so not always the same bacteria, but just to see the consistency. And this is one thing that I have to compliment people on so much, not just Jim, but other people that I work with too. When people follow a set of instructions and give you the sample that you need, or it makes the world of difference when it comes to analysing data. So I cannot thank people enough who are listening to this, just how good it is to work with you, because poor samples do not create great data. And when I can see trends in data or traits or something that, that fits, that makes sense with all of the, the data and information that you have available to you at the time, it's just the most rewarding thing. So a shout out thank you to the hard workers out there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of them in the industry. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, so it's why it makes it so good to um, to work in this industry. But and I think the thing with, with, with Jim and another thing that kind of uh, opened my eyes is that no matter what beliefs you have, you know, if you're if you're wanting to go chemical free or you're wanting to use an emeticide or you know, or, or something else. It's so key to understand the timing. Yeah. You know, yeah. when to apply products It is so key. Um, because if you are applying products, you want them to work as efficiently as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So having that base kind of understanding of, of the hatching patterns of um, regular kind of uh, regular samples that, that are accurate actually allows uh, the whole kind of unit, you know, applications, um, mechanical procedures and everything else to be timed to yeah. the, ex the exact points. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do. It is. Yeah, it, it completely is because you're right. It's just that you can't see them. If you could see them, it would make life a lot easier. But, you know, if, if you did ever want to take a look from time to time, you, know, you can take up a core yourself if you've got a decent, like, eyeglass then get yourself like a squishy bottle of water or something that you can force water out of like a pressure hose or something and just wash the root backwards from the bottom to the top ever so gently and you can actually have a look under the eyeglass yourself now galls they will be like a good few millimeters at their full size in a, in a ryegrass I, I can't emphasize this enough ryegrass is a an excellent host for a root knot and so you can see goals yourself um, if, if you know what to look for so it is something that you can check and if you want double checking you know if you want confirmation you can send to a lab but you can you can get an idea yourself just from looking and also for grey leaf spot as well you know again if you do want confirmation it is a good idea to send to a lab but you can when the environment becomes conducive to you uh, sporulation so really high temperatures um, prolonged periods of leaf wetness um, <clears throat> high humidity all of these things when they all come together around about from august to september onwards you know to collect like a core or two from suspect areas or the most high pressure areas that you have, pop them into a grip seal bag in a warm place and watch and just see whether or not this heightened environment can induce sporulation. So it's like an, an early warning kind of system. You can do that yourself as well. There's a couple of fantastic points I think you've just brought up there. So. All the, the nematodes to actually have a look at the gulls on the on the roots. 
Can you just take us through those two processes again? Because uh, I think that is really important for anyone listening. To if you can do your own kind of samples before sending them to the lab or jointly, that would be great. So do you think you could just say that again, Deb, in case anyone missed it? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. So um, if if you have historical data or knowledge of where some of these um, or where where some root knot pressure has been in the past, I'd always go for the highest area because it'll it, it, it's the easiest. What you can do is if you take a core, make sure it's at least 10 centimeters deep and get like a like a bottle of water with a hole pop, popped in the lid so you can apply pressure, like squeeze the bottle and put force in it so that the water squishes out and actually kind of blast the roots. You don't want to do it too hard, but gently enough just to wash away the sand from the bottom to the top. So do it quite gradually. It's easiest to do this in a sandy root zone. And then if you kind of spread out the tissues, you can you can look to see if there's any kind of malformations and misshapen, twisted kind of roots. At late stages of development, they will be visible um, to the naked eye. You do have to look quite closely, but you, you can search on Google online and you, you can get an idea of their size and what they look like. And you can get an idea from this whether or not you you might have a root knot problem. It just helps narrow things down, especially if you have areas where there's history of chlorosis or thinning. Depends on the turf type, of course, but typically in a ryegrass, you would expect to see some chlorosis when population levels get extremely high. It also gives you an opportunity just to, to have a look at your root system so that you're actually engaging with it and you know what normal looks like. And it does take a bit of experience, but the more you do it, the more familiar you'll be with how heavy it should be. You can weigh it. Um, there's various things that you can do. It's just just something simple that, that you can do on site to have a look and give you a bit of an idea as to whether or not you might have that kind of pest. And um, for the grey leaf spot, Again, just going to the most high-pressure areas where the environment would be most conducive to sporulation, putting some some tissue inside a grip seal bag, maybe with a tiny little bit of, of water um, just so that it's humid, and just closing it up, putting it in a warm place and just seeing whether or not lesions or twisted leaves start to form any of the, the symptoms that are classic grey leaf spot. There's actually a, a, an article which um, Sabine, based in Germany, Kate uh, in England and myself wrote for the GMA last year. It's available online and it gives you some nice pictures of what to look, look for. So you can have a, a read through that at your leisure and hopefully it's helpful to people in the future. I think it definitely will be. And we, we're seeing, you know, there was a few stadiums um, last year who who had grey leaf spot. Yeah. And typically you think we're going to see that more and more as the climate changes? I don't have a crystal ball. I, I want to say no, but if there is one thing that we should learn is to embrace what is coming from Europe nine times out of ten you know if you look towards Europe you see this kind of sweep up to the British Isles so whatever they have we can learn from it in advance we can understand what they're doing to, to kind of manage the situation and think about worst case scenario contingency plans like in, in Europe 
I was recently in Seville and speaking to some turf managers there and they found managing it very, very difficult. You know, it, it, it really can be quite severe um, if the environment is conducive. You know, you're really talking about complete turf loss in a few days and this, this is why I'm just saying to keep an eye on things is really important. Not, not to scare monger people, but just to realise that the speed at which this can really spread and take over is quite it's dramatic and just to be ahead of the game is really important because they were saying that well you can look at things like UVC light but that's really to stop it's really stop the sporulation process and to stop the spread it doesn't get rid of things so it might it, well it, it, it is helpful on the surface but the amount of spores, you're talking billions of spores are produced by this fungus and so they get then trapped in the thatch layer, you're never going to get rid of them all. And so it, it's reasonable to suspect that the way this fungus survives is in the thatch layer and over time in following years, maybe in roughly the same location, you, you might expect to, to find that infection then comes through the root system. So it's not a case of eradication for that at all. Um, certainly in, in Europe, they're having to re-turf and consider different grasses to try and deal with the problem long term because, well, it, it's just devastating if it, if it does take hold. So well done to people who, who, who managed that successfully last year because it's very challenging indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I did see a couple of cases, and I suppose like everything, it's um, <coughs> you want to try and get ahead as much as possible. So with, with grey leaf spot, typically for a football pitch is where I've seen it. We grow the pitches in, so we car off, we grow the pitches in. Quite a lot of the times during those summer months, it is extremely hot within yeah. these stadiums. Yeah. So you're stuck in that kind of rock and a hard place of going, I need to keep the plant alive yeah. and keep it watered. But at the same time, yeah. you know, you're keeping a very wet leaf surface and creating a, um, you know, a, a platform for disease and different things to spiralate. So with preemptive measures within football stadiums for grey leaf spot, then we're obviously... We're taking samples, and uh, you can do the the sample yourself. You can put it in a bag. You can see what what kind of comes off of that. We're going on historic kind of data. We're trying to keep the leaf as, as dry as we possibly can. Minimal thatch layer, which it should be. Early fungicide. Has that been effective? Yeah. Um, the the options. Well, for for some. You know, a pesticide, pesticide-free policy. Just thinking towards like the future. You know, yeah, it, it is something which people are seriously considering and coming up with alternative ways for control or whether there are products out there that maybe help suppress disease. And you, you do hear about some products where people have had severe fungal issues, just generally, especially like Microdochium or. Uh, Rhizoctonia, and they've applied some kind of organic fertilizer. We don't fully understand all of the science behind what's going on. I know that there is current research going on in it in the states, but you know, just to to understand that people are still actively researching these things, it it, it will take time. But 
pesticide-free policies is kind of at the forefront of my mind and just how to support people implementing these policies if, if that's the way that they want to go. Um, some people in, in Europe have no option to apply a, a fungicide at all. They they just have to deal with it and the way that they do so is to re-turf, uh, kind of lay in play and hope for the best. Um, quite serious. Yeah, and I mean I have seen you know, I mean, you've worked with me for a while, so I try and use as minimal chemicals as I possibly can, unless you absolutely have to. But um, and there have been people, you know, who who are now gone through quite a few years without using any chemical applications. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't see disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think that's one of the key things. Yes. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that you're not going to see disease, but there are various products and and cultural practices I think is one of the main things absolutely you know the products are only as good as the 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 kind of cultural practices and environment that and timing and application that you put them in but if you stick to your the foundation that we know is, is going to help your soil biology your you know minimal amount of nitrogen required keeping the plant lean but keeping it dry putting your cultural practices in place there's a lot of risk that you can mitigate yeah however that doesn't mean that that when disease pressure and everything else gets to a point you're still going to see disease but what i do see is that the people that have implemented all of these procedures they see a lot less disease Mm -hmm. and it's far less aggressive so you know they're enabled to actually uh, deal with disease much better, but that is just in cool season grasses in yeah. the UK. Yeah, yeah. Once you start stepping out into different climates, then it's a whole different ball game of of different challenges. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, completely agree with you, Matt. Yeah. So, but I think it's so interesting. You know, when you do start delving into what is actually happening under our feet what's happening within the soils and what's happening within that soil food web and how can we how can we work with that uh, to produce the, the best sports turf possible and in 99% of the cases in a very very harsh environmental condition you know as in yeah. a humongous stadium <laughs> you know <laughs> with limited sunlight airflow you know, that the goes back to the one of the first things we learn. You know, you need water, air, light, temperature. Uh. With stadiums and, and quite a few golf courses, I see where it's surrounded by trees. The first things we do is actually implement structures and different things that take away a few of those necessities. Uh. So it's how best to, to work around that. But I think it's really, really key that people are looking into this more and more. And especially if you can do some simple kind of analysis yourself before you you send it to the lab. So just running through the key points on on nematodes, and it fits into grey leaf spot really, you want to look at your historic data. Yeah. So what has been there before? What's likely to happen? Take your own kind of samples, have a look at those, interact with people like yourself who can give you a bit more of a, a diagnostic, identify different hatching patterns, species, and environments where it's likely for these diseases to occur, and stick to the foundations. 
So, yeah. you know, cultural practices, sound biology, correct biostimulants are backed up with data and try and reduce, you know, as, as many inputs as you can, as in timing and application is really key. Yeah, yeah, completely agree with that, yeah. Well summarised. <laughs> well, it's, I get one right every now and again, <laughs> so we'll, we'll take that. But, <laughs> um, and then the other thing I think uh, we should mention, because I know we've been, time flies whenever I speak to you, but um, the the interesting thing that we actually put in place that we still want to catch up on uh, was a bit of a, a, a metagenomic study, and and I will leave you to actually explain what metagenomic means. I've only been able to say it in the past couple of weeks. So, no, you did good. No, you did yeah, good. there you go. Yeah. Um, so and we did kind of deso versus non-deso. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll leave it to you to explain metagenomics. Okay, so technically speaking, metagenomics is the study of all genomes that are present within whatever you're looking at. So the method, is, so just so I don't upset any academics, is that the, the, the technique that was used was something called amplicon sequencing. So not super important for listeners to know, but just so I don't upset anyone, um, it's technically looking at the DNA of organisms and how we can generate a biological profile um, through DNA. So this is a technique, it's not necessarily new, it's been used for uh, a number of years, decades actually, um, but not necessarily in this kind of context, it's just a few studies mainly from the states that have looked at things like transects, so what's different between like the rough to a fairway to an approach to a green, you know, different areas and how they change. And so myself and Matt sat down oh, quite a while ago now and very kindly he got some clubs involved and we set up a protocol and this is relating back again to what I said earlier about how great a job people do because it makes the world of difference. So everyone at the same time, on the same day, went out and took samples exactly as I asked, and it made my OCD just, <laughs> I was very happy. <laughs> and so everything arrived, and we basically got some material from each of the cores that were submitted, and we looked at bacteria and how or what, what the main differences are between a, a DESO-style pitch and a non-DESO-style pitch. So my understanding is really that, you know, there might be, if we have enough samples of each type, we might be able to tease apart what groups of bacteria might be associated with them. Now, this not just might be by chance, you know, we, we just had four in each group, so it's not huge a study, but it, it's enough to have some statistical power to say what might be or, or just some leading groups of bacteria to really look at and so some of these groups actually might be associated with the fibres themselves so we're finding things like bacteria that can degrade polymers and, and plastics and all kinds of things and so it was just interesting to see that we actually could, with just four samples from each type, completely different areas as well, not two places side by side. So no geographic clustering. The major effect was the type of of turf. And to me, that was actually quite mind-blowing. I was like, oh, blimey, maybe you don't need as many samples as what I previously thought. You know, we can actually do 
quite a lot with that. And so for me, I mean, the biggest, well, there was many big things out of that, but, you know, upwards of, of thousands, you know, I think it was like 6,000 OTUs on average. And that that's really quite biodiverse. That, that was one surprise, I suppose. But on average, from my memory, um, it was around about a thousand different, a thousand more um, different groups. Well, I'm just going to call them groups to make it simple, but maybe a thousand more different groups in non-DASO samples. Now, maybe that's to be expected because the, the turf is well, likely to be older, less disturbed, less done to it. But um, it's not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing, but a high proportion of these groups were actually unknown. So that, that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with the data. What it means is that we don't have full and complete databases. Databases are being updated and added to all the time, but for the, the database version that was used at the time of analysis, you know, there's a huge fraction of the data that, that just didn't best match anything, so I don't quite know what these things are. Now, for me, that's quite exciting <laughs> because you want to to understand what's there, what role it has, what it's doing, what it's not doing. <laughs> and one of the one of the interesting groups for me were the amount of symbionts. So groups of bacteria, you can think of them like little scaffolds or like building little houses where they kind of rely on one another. They create these things called biofilms. And so what you find is that some groups of bacteria are often associated with another and it might be the case that they rely on one another, they enjoy each other's company, so to speak, and um, while it's unclear what role they have, where you find these associations, it's just important to know what normal looks like, I suppose, because unless you know what normal is, how can you say what's not normal? And then how can you say what needs to be fixed or if anything needs fixed at all? It's just I'm trying to ask the most basic question, like really simple questions I just don't have the answers to. And while I'm building a picture of what normal looks like, it's going to take years. <laughs> I gave myself a target of maybe looking at this until 2030 just to give like a kind of maybe some sort of biological baseline, so maybe different turf types, what the major groups are, what they might be doing. If you apply product type X, you know, like a biostimulant of some sort, and you expect the roots to grow and you have this phenotypic data, what happens when you look at the groups of microbes, which ones might be associated with growth or which ones might be um, endophytes, for example, just really simple, basic questions, but it's going to take a long, long time. <laughs> yeah, but it is so interesting, though. You know, as, as to you know, the, even the, the we're still kind of scratching the surface with with the understanding of every single you know all the different life sources within uh, the soil profiles. And from a kind of product point of view, it's it's really interesting because down the line, can we actually analyze each different one, mm. you know, as to what they do retrospectively, and can we be more precise? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the most challenging things, well, for me in my brain anyway, if you imagine you've got 100%, so this is all of the, the microbes, or say, just let's 
look at bacteria just first of all you've got 100 pi there's thousands of different bacteria in a sample so you have to divide that 100 pi by x number of thousands so the when you when you think about the prevalence or what percentage of each type is present you're really dealing with fractions of a percent and i think that that's something which people have maybe not heard much about before because you know we want to talk about like 10 percent increase you know something something big you know big number means good yeah. but usually what happens well let, let's just take anything actually gray leaf spot you know microdochium dollar spot you know any of these pathogens you can see how fast does mycelium form on the surface <laughs> you know if you were to take a core one day when you see nothing if the environment is right and conducive how fast does that change and this is this this is where there's this disconnect as i say between like the risk or what might happen in the future and prevalence it doesn't always tie in perfectly and time time is something that it's the biggest factor in this actually figuring out what looks normal and when mm. Yeah, and actually having that kind of baseline, this is normal. You yeah, know? it's <laughs> normal for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's normal for one person might not be normal for another. And you see this with nematode populations, actually. Some, say, say you maybe don't have the best drainage in the world, or if you have, I don't know, issues with provocation or, you know, high salinity or... Um, I don't know, pH issues or something like this, you know, something on top of it, um, your, your, your nematode baseline is always going to be different to someone else's. Now, there are, there's this kind of universal, you know, I, I use 0 to 1, 1 to 10, and more than 10 just as broad brackets to, to guide what you should do next. But it, it is possible to, to tailor that unique to a site. You can definitely do that. You, need, you, you do need some data behind you, but you, you can get that kind of feeling for where you're sitting. You know, an NDI of like 200 and a rye graphs is not unseen or unheard of. And, you know, I'm kind of panicking myself when I get these numbers thinking, oh, crikey, you know, <laughs> you know that that's a lot of pressure. Are you seeing anything? And it, it's reassuring when people say well actually do you know what the plant vigor is good plant health looks okay my root system isn't compromised I'm incorporating biostimulants to replace the lost tissue I know it's going through this process and the numbers deplete again and I just as you were saying earlier you don't always see the surface damage but it's because of the plant vigor and just reducing stress it just everything is everything is related <laughs> yeah it really is and there's the there are so many, and that, I think that's one of the hardest things about the, the industry we're in, is that there are so many um, anomalies that can influence it. Yeah. You know, it's uh, especially, well, as we just said, with, with Jim at uh, Twickenham, not even stadium to stadium, it's kind of one half to the other. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Many stadia are exactly the same. Um, yeah, just just with the way that the stands sit, and you know, especially lighting, like lighting is a, a stressor in itself. Too much, too little. <laughs> it's almost like Goldilocks. Yeah, it really is, and it's um, yeah. But I think that's what kind of keeps the um, 
uh, keeps everyone going at, to some point because there are a lot of uh, unanswered questions and we, mm-hmm. we all strive to get the perfect pitch or the yeah. perfect golf course yeah. um, you might get it for a week two months maybe you know <laughs> through, the, through the year if you if you're lucky but um I think it's that kind of chase you know I want perfection I want to find this out I want to keep going uh, that kind of really pushes the the industry along mm. and from, from your perspective where do you see the the next kind of five years of of research and development is it continuing continuing what you're doing and, and building that database I take it yeah I mean to, to be honest I'm just just to be brutally honest I'm going to be sticking to the most basic questions I know it seems really boring asking you know what's there and when and the life cycles and I know that every single talk I bang on about it but it is actually one of the best things you can have in your back pocket is the knowledge and so I I will be updating my website at some point it's just one thing on my endless list of tasks to do but just to give a little bit more insight into the different types of nematodes that you have um, or that you can commonly encounter just so people have some kind of a resource. So that will be coming. And now that I've said it, I actually have to do it. And on top of that, just to look, it's probably going to take 10 years to to really look at all the different bacteria and fungi. We haven't even touched on archaea yet or viruses. You know, there's... There's an awful lot of complete un, uncharted territory there to explore, which is exciting. But it's just, you know, is there, just hypothetically speaking, you know, could could you have a virus that infects a bacterium that would cause disease otherwise? You know, you have all these complex interactions. It's not just straight interactions with the plants. There's a, there is an awful lot going on. So building a fuller picture of that. Or another example, just what kind of pasteuria would infect a stubby root nematode you know you can see them in, inside the gut you can you can see them um uh, under the microscope but i have no idea what they are or what species they are um just little things like that just a- answering very basic questions is where i see this for for me at, at least in the, in the next 10 or well, five to ten years but from a management point of view bearing in the back of your mind that many many places will be looking Mm. to adopt pesticide free policies and whether chemistries will still be available um just keep keeping an open mind about how to approach problems in the long run is what i would suggest yeah and i think you you kind of hit some some really key points and things that people can follow you know, is to try and minimise these um, as well. And for people that want to follow you, mm-hmm. is it on Twitter, website? Uh, it's Deborah underscore LVS. And the website is Lagan Valley Scientific. Uh, but I would suggest that, um, yeah, everyone follows uh, Deb on Twitter. Have a look at the website. I know we'll be doing more stuff as we go along. Deb has been a really key kind of influential person for for myself for AGS when we are looking further into uh, nematodes and metagenomics so yeah we hope that that you're able to do uh, a couple more appearances for us as the the year goes on yeah yeah no absolutely no pleasure too happy to help 
Absolutely. And that's great. And um, yeah, just brilliant. Thank you as always for your time. I always appreciate it. I always feel like I come away uh, learning something new, uh, which is great. And uh, yeah, just thank you very much, Deb. That's been brilliant. No problem. No, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Take care. Thanks for listening to Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub Podcast. For more information, visit advancedgrass.com or follow us on socials using the handle at advancedgrass.